Fun. Welcome. You guys awake? You got your coffee? The, the brave people who uh, remembered that it was daylight savings time this morning. You guys made it. Welcome. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to Genesis chapter 13. And we're going to cover the whole chapter this morning. This is uh, our last installment of Genesis. And then we're going we're gonna to take a few weeks off to study the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke leading up to Easter. So we're going to be out of Genesis for a few weeks after this morning. So soak it all in while we're still here. Genesis 13, we'll start by reading the passage together. It's fairly short for a whole chapter, 18 verses, and it says this. Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he, his wife, and all he had, and Lot with him. Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. He went by stages from the Negev to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had formerly been to the site where he had built the altar. And Abram called on the name of the Lord there. Now Lot, who was traveling with Abram, also had flocks, herds, and tents. But the land was unable to support them as long as they stayed together, for they had so many possessions that they could not stay together. And there was quarreling between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please, Let's not have quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen since we are relatives. Isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me. If you go to the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. Lot looked out and saw that the entire plain of the Jordan as far as Zor was well watered everywhere like the Lord's garden and the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself. Then Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated from each other. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. After Lot had separated from him, the Lord said to Abram, Look from the place where you are. Look north and south, east and west, for I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. Get up and walk around the land through its length and width, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and went to live near the oaks of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that we can gather and we can worship you. God, it is a great privilege. Lord, all of the things that had to go right for us to be here in this moment worshiping you. God, we have the health to make it here. God, we have the cognitive ability to engage with you and understand who you are, your presence, to hear your word, to speak to you with language, to praise you with words. God, you've given us good enough weather to get here. The sun rose this morning. We praise you for that. God, you've allowed us to live in a land where we have the freedom to worship in the name of Jesus which is a great privilege, God, that we should not take for granted. And so we just want to thank you, Lord, 
that we can gather, we can worship, we can be together, we can teach the Bible. It's a great privilege. And Lord, I pray that you would help us not to take it for granted. Help us not to miss what you have to say to us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been looking at the life of Abram for the past few weeks in Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 13. And in those chapters, this is the early story of the life of Abram. There are two very important principles that sort of rise to the surface of the narrative. And these principles have incredible relevance for us today. Three principles, rather. Principle number one, your default mode is to not operate by faith. This is the first principle that we see. Your default mode is to not operate by faith in God's promises. Just like your default mode is to not eat a ketogenic diet or Whole30. I know some of you have done Whole30 or Paleo or whatever version of healthy eating you prefer. That is not your default mode. Your default mode is to go to Hy-Vee and crush some general chicken from the Hy-Vee Chinese. That's my default mode, rather. I don't know what yours is. Uh, Maybe you like ice cream, or maybe you like to eat candy or drink pop. I don't know, whatever. Fill in the blank. But without some external input, the idea is you're going to eat whatever you feel like. This This is just human nature. For most people, 99% of people, without some external input, you're going to eat whatever you feel like. And it's not until your doctor says, hey, your cholesterol is out of control. I mean, you're going to have a heart attack. You you got to do something about this. Or it's not until you start watching Thomas DeLauer videos on YouTube. You guys will thank me later. Thomas DeLauer on YouTube. It's not until something happens that your eyes are opened to the reality that there's something way better for you that doesn't come naturally to you. It's not until you see that, that you'll begin to change your behavior. And God's promises work the same way. You will not naturally default to living according to God's promises, to living by faith. And this is what we see with Abram in Genesis 12. Beginning of Genesis 12, we meet Abram and God makes him some foundational promises. In many ways, these promises serve not only as the foundation for Judaism, but even Christianity. What were the promises? God says to Abram, I'll give you a land. I'll make you a great nation. That means descendants. You're going to have innumerable descendants. He says in chapter 13, they'll be like the dust of the earth. Can anyone count the dust? No, they're innumerable. He says, I will bless you and I will bless the whole world through you. Now the promise is a little bit cryptic, but we have the advantage of being on the other side of this history. And so we know now that the land... We already found this out in chapter 12. The land that God promises to give Abram is the land of Canaan. It's modern-day Israel. The descendants that he promises to Abram are the Israelites and also Christians. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you are, the Bible says in the New Testament, you are a descendant of Abraham through the new covenant, the new promise in Jesus Christ. The blessing promised to Abram is multifaceted, but ultimately it's about sending the Lord Jesus Christ to save the world from sin and death. That is the blessing. It is salvation from sin and death. Now, it's more than that for Abram. It includes other blessings. It includes wealth, prosperity, influence. It includes God's presence. 
but it's ultimately about sending Jesus through Abram's lineage. And then Jesus is the way that God was going to bless the whole world through Abraham by offering salvation from sin and death to the whole world. That offer of salvation is extended to the whole world through Jesus. So, in other words, these promises are a really big deal in Genesis chapter 12. And they are still a really big deal. They are foundational. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but if we don't have these promises by God given to Abram, then there really is no Christianity. There's no Christianity apart from these promises. There's no Israel. There's no Bible, really, apart from these promises. The whole rest of the story is about the fulfillment of God's promises to Abram. And so Abram had these incredible foundational promises from God. And you think, man, he should have been able to conquer the world. He should have been able to do anything. He, he had directly received from God these foundational promises. And yet, as soon as he's faced with a scary, difficult situation, he abandons them. He lets go of the promises. He literally abandons the land that God promised to give him fled to Egypt because of the famine. He gets to Egypt, he almost loses his wife, which is kind of critical for the descendants part of the promise. So it's not good. God intervened, saved the day. That's chapter 12. We studied that last week. Now chapter 13, what we see is there's another crisis situation. But this time, instead of acting out of fear, instead of forgetting God's promises, Abram responds with faith. Pretty remarkable faith, in fact. He believes God. And so, while last week he served as a negative example, this is what not to do. This week he serves as a positive example. He learns something from the episode in Egypt, and he changes. And this is the second principle that we see, chapters 12 and 13, is that you must learn to live by faith in God's promises. You're not going to default to it, which means you have to learn it. Just like if you're going to eat paleo, you have to learn it. You have to implement it. You have to learn some principles, and then you actually have to change your behavior. It doesn't come naturally to you. And then the third key principle is that the stakes for learning to live by faith are very high. The stakes could not be higher. You will not naturally live by faith. You must learn to live by faith, and if you don't, the stakes are so high. I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way before, but if you're a human being, no matter who you are, the reason you exist is to receive this blessing from God promised to Abram. You've probably never thought about it that way. That's why you exist. That is the purpose of life. It is to receive this blessing from God promised to Abram. Now, there's other ways to describe it. But the blessing from God promised to Abram ultimately is about God himself. This is the blessing. Abram gets God. He gets to know God. He gets to have God. He gets to have a relationship with God. And every desire you have, every hope, every dream in your soul, God has put that in you to draw you to Him. This is why you exist. Nothing in this world will ever satisfy your soul because you were made to know and experience God. He is the point of all of life good illustration for this is marriage. If you're married, you're going to know what I'm talking about. If you're not married, pay attention. The point of marriage is not to go on cool vacations with your spouse. It's not to do all kinds of fun hobbies. 
and watch movies together that you like. It's not even to build a great home and family. Those are all byproducts of a good marriage. The primary blessing of marriage, the point of it, is your spouse. That's the point of marriage. That is the blessing of marriage. You get them. You get to know them. You get to have them. And it works the same way with God. There's all kinds of benefits to knowing God and being adopted into His family, being made righteous. But the primary blessing is Him. But you only receive that blessing by faith in His promises. And so the stakes are very high. We want to learn to actively believe His promises. Not just intellectually, but in a way that impacts our decisions and our living. So with the rest of our time, we're going to look at how to live by faith in God's promises. Four steps from Genesis 13. There's many more that we could add. But this is kind of a case study. We see Abram, he, he learns. He repents of his faithlessness and his fear in chapter 12. And he walks by incredible faith in chapter 13. And so we want to learn the same lessons that Abram learned. How do you live by faith? Step number one, remember God's character. Verse 1 says, Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he, his wife, and all he had, and Lot with him. Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. The language here, it emphasizes God's character, specifically God's goodness toward Abram. So when it says Abram was very rich, it's the Hebrew word kaved. You maybe have heard of this word before, kaved, it's the same word that gets translated to glory. When we talk about God's glory in Hebrew, it's the word kaved. And it's a word that has many different meanings. It can mean heavy, weighty, substantial, significant. And in this context, it's positive. Abram comes back to the land of Canaan from Egypt with a kaved of wealth. He is heavy with wealth, literally. He's carrying lots of valuable stuff. And this is meant to serve for us as the reader of how he went down into Egypt. In Genesis 12, verse 10, you remember, it says there was a famine in the land of Canaan. So Abram went down to Egypt to stay there for a while because the famine in the land was severe. Same word. The famine in the land was kaved. And so Abram leaves in severe famine and he returns with severe wealth. And it's not because of anything he did. (laughs) Abram was a numbskull in Egypt. Even going to Egypt seems like was a very bad decision. And so he returns with severe wealth after leaving in severe famine, not because of anything he did. In fact, it's in spite of what he did. It is purely because of God's goodness towards him. And you might say, well, God has not given me severe wealth. (laughs) I feel that way at times, and that might not be true. Maybe he has not given you severe wealth, but God has been good to you. And I might not even know you. I might not know much about your life, but I know for sure, no matter how difficult or painful your life is right now, God is good. God is good. In fact, Genesis teaches us that God is so good that he is the very source of all goodness in the world. I had a conversation with someone this week, an uh, elderly man, not a Christian. And he, he, I've had this conversation many times. He kind of played this trump card. 
in his mind. This is the trump card. If God exists and he's good, then why could there be so much bad stuff in the world? And every time someone says that to me, I think to myself, why should there be anything good in the world? (laughs) Why should you get to experience any goodness at all? Genesis 1 says that God created the world and he created it perfectly good. Everything about God's creation was good originally because he is pure goodness. In Genesis 1, when God created the world, there's no pain. There's no death. There's no brokenness. There was no hatred or loneliness in the world when God made it. There was no sickness or disease. There were no natural disasters. There was no selfishness or greed. There was God's perfect creation in perfect harmony. This is what we have in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And so you say, well, that's not the world that we live in today. You look around the world and it is utterly broken. It is full of chaos and darkness and pain and everything dies. Everything is in a constant state of decay. Where did that come from? Well, pain and brokenness comes from people. Specifically, it it came originally from people rejecting the goodness of God. Saying, no, no, God, we don't want any of that. (laughs) We don't need you. We just want your stuff. We don't need your restrictions or your commands. We just want your creation. And in Genesis 3, the creation itself was broken by sin. First man and the first woman disobeying God, rebelling against God. And this is why there's disease in the world. This is why there's decay. This is why there's death. And it's not just the creation that was broken by sin. People themselves were broken by sin. This is why people are bad. People are not basically good. People are fundamentally broken. Do you know any bad people? I do. (laughs) Some people are really, really bad. And yet, even in such a broken world, we all get relief. Everyone. You get relief. Even if it's just in brief moments. And that's because of God's goodness. Think about all the relief that you get. I like to go on walks, especially in the summer. And and when the weather is just perfect, just the sun on your skin, especially this time of year, I just start to like long for the sun on my skin because it's always cloudy and it's freezing cold. You can't go outside. But man, a couple months here, it's going to warm up and you get to go outside and just, have you ever just noticed the sun on your skin and you're like, this is the best thing ever. (laughs) Just something so simple or the satisfaction of a good meal. Just a good meal from Chick-fil-A sometimes. (laughs) It's like, man, God is so good. All kinds of different expressions of kindness, even from strangers. You know, just a, a barista at Starbucks who's extra chipper. Sometimes you can think, man, that is, so, that is such a joy. Just someone to smile at you and look you in the eye and ask you how your day is going. You get relief from pain and brokenness in the world all the time. And we don't deserve any of that. Even the small things, we don't deserve it. Because all of you guys, newsflash, you hurt people the same way you've been hurt. It, it, People, people have been selfish towards you. They've been greedy towards you. They've been unkind and hateful. But you do the same things to other people. Not in the exact same way or maybe to the same degree, but we're all broken. Just like Abram. We're not good like God, and yet God is still good to us. And Abram had forgotten about God's goodness in Egypt, but here he remembers it. And verse 3 says, He went by stages to the Negev, from the Negev to Bethel, 
to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had formerly been, to the site where he had built the altar. And Abram called on the name of the Lord there. So Abram sees, Abram remembers God's goodness, how God has been faithful to him, and he worships. He worships God. He praises God. Almost certainly this would have included sacrifice, and it would have included verbal articulation of praise. He expresses thanks to God. This is a big part of what he's doing. And he does it publicly, and he does it passionately. And this is a very, very important step to remembering God's character. Critical. If you want to remember God's goodness, you have to thank Him. We're going to get really practical here. If, if you want to remember God's goodness, you must thank Him. And actually practice thanksgiving. Not just have an attitude, a spirit of thanksgiving. You have to do it. You have to say, God, thank you for... Dot, dot, dot. Psalm 107 verse 1 says, Give thanks to the Lord. This is a command in the Bible. You should give thanks to the Lord. Why? For He is good. Because He is good. His faithful love endures forever. This exact phrase, give thanks to the Lord for His good, His faithful love endures forever, it repeats over and over and over in the Scriptures. You see it in First Chronicles. You see it in Ezra. You see it over and over in the Psalms. It's a command to us. Give thanks to the Lord. I like to listen to some podcasts about neuroscience sometimes. And uh, you might think that's a weird thing to do. I don't know. The algorithm got me. <laughs> I got sucked in. There's a, a podcast, a guy named Dr. Andrew Huberman. He is a uh, PhD research neuroscientist at Stanford University. And I'm almost positive he's not a Christian. But he is a lot smarter than I am when it comes to the biology of the human brain. This is what he studies. And he's done a lot of work on the area of gratitude. So they hook up all kinds of electrodes. I don't know how they do it. They're able to determine what areas of the brain fire, how they work, what chemicals are being released. And study after study after study in the last 15 years or so shows that gratitude has a gigantic impact on your brain chemistry, practicing gratitude. And they know without a shadow of a doubt that gratitude increases not only mental and emotional, but even physical health factors. It's amazing research. It improves your cognitive ability. It improves emotional stability. Just simply practicing gratitude. And this is totally disconnected from Christianity or faith or anything like that. Just human beings in general who will intentionally practice gratitude. It will change your life. Even in a, even in a totally secular environment. Because God's word is true. <laughs> God's word knows what it's talking about. You should thank God for who he is, what he's done. And that's what Abram does here. He remembers God's goodness and faithfulness, and then he locks in that memory through worship and practicing gratitude, which is the first step to living by faith, remembering God's character. Step number two, trust God's word. Verse five says, Now Lot, who was traveling with Abram, also had flocks, herds, and tents. But the land was unable to support them as long as they stayed together, for they had so many possessions that they could not stay together. And there were quarreling between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. So this situation 
represents a new crisis. In Genesis chapter 12, there was a crisis because of not enough resources. Not enough resources to survive because of famine. Here, there's not enough resources to survive because of wealth. They're living off the land. This is an agrarian time in the world, and so they need water. They need produce. They need grazing land. And they just, there's too many of them. They've got too many sheep, too many camels, too many goats, whatever else they have. And they're going to just destroy the land if they stay together. They're all going to starve because there's not enough for all of them. In addition, it says at that time the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. So it seems like one of the other problems is that they're going to begin to attract a little bit too much attention if they stay together. And so they need to split up. Now, if you're Abram in this situation, what would you do? What would you do? I know what I would do. You're in the land that God promised to give you, and your little nephew is starting to cramp your style. <laughs> I would say, hey, Lot, sorry, I love you, little guy, but you got to hit the road. <laughs> you got to take a hike. I'm the oldest. I'm the leader. I'm the one who's God, who, who God's promises came to. And so Abram, I think, would have been totally justified to just send Lot packing. Just say, take a hike. Hit the road. You go find some other land. This is my land. But that's not what Abram does. Verse 8, so Abram said to Lot, please, let's not have quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen since we are relatives. Isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me. If you go to the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. Abram says to Lot, okay, you can stay in the land and you get to pick which land you want to live off of. You go first. So when you remember God's goodness toward you, you realize that you ought to extend that goodness to other people. This is just what naturally happens. Part of God's goodness is his kindness. It's his patience. It's his generosity. It's his self-sacrifice toward you. Abram has received, he's experienced all these things from God. He knows he doesn't deserve any of them. And then he looks at his little nephew and he says, this is how I should treat him. This is how God has treated me, not because I deserve it, but because of who he is. And this is how I should treat other people. The problem is the land that they're in is supposed to be for Abram according to God's promise. So this is a bit of a conundrum. He's in a catch-22. So he could be a jerk to Lot and tell him to get lost, but he knows that wouldn't be right. His other option is he risks giving away the promised land. So what is he supposed to do? Well, he opts for the latter. And you need to sense what a big deal this is. Abram is in the very place that God told him, Genesis 12, verse 7, would belong to his offspring forever. And he, he, he looks at his little nephew and he says, Lot, you can have it. It's yours if you want it. You can have it. Why would he do that? Well, this is an incredible act of faith. That's what's happening here. Abram knows he can give the land away a thousand times and God will still ensure that it goes to his descendants. How does he know that? Well, he knows because that's what God said. And he believes it. Genesis 12, 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give 
this land right here, this land that you are on, and they're in the same spot now. He believes God's promise. And it sets him free to do what's right. That's the dynamic here. It sets him free to treat his nephew the way he, know God, he knows God expects him to treat him. He does what's right even though it's scary. He does what's right even though it's confusing because he trusts the word of God. Now, in order to trust the word of God, you think about, okay, how do, how do I do this? Very basic, practical reality. In order to trust the Word of God, you must know the Word of God. If you're a Christian, you've been in church for any amount of time, then you've heard this before. It's never going to stop being true. In order to trust the Word of God, you must know the Word of God. So God has not promised to give you that land. If you go to Hebron, or Bethel, or Ai, or the Oaks of Mamre. <laughs> you know, if you were to go over to Israel today, you couldn't just plant a flag in the ground and say, this is mine. I'm a descendant of Abraham. It's not the way it works. God has not promised to give you the land of Canaan. God has not promised to make you into a great nation. You might never be married. You might never have kids. God's not promised you that as a promise for Abram. So here's a question. Do you know what God has promised you? Do you even know? What has God promised you? You're going to need to know that if you want to walk in faith. And so when you face difficult situations, what promises do you think of directly from the Bible? Not just ideas, not just let go and let God, but what specific verses do you call to mind and think, I know God promises me this. And then it actually shapes your decision making. If you don't know at least some of what God has said in his word, then you can't trust him. You just can't. Even if you want to, you can't. So what does God promise you today? I'm going to give you just a handful of stunning promises that are for you from God himself. In the same way, God showed up to Abram and said, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. God has shown up and he has spoken these promises to you in his word. Here's just a few. 1 John 1, 9, God promises to forgive your sin and make you righteous. Romans 6, 4, God promises to give you a new life, free from sin and emptiness in the world. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, God promises to make you into a new person, indwelled by the Spirit of God. Romans 8, 15, God promises to adopt you as His son or daughter, in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 42, God promises to resurrect you to eternal life after physical death. It's an amazing passage. He promises to give you a new body that is perfect and glorified and will last forever in paradise. 1 Peter 1, verse 3 through 9, God promises to give you an inheritance in his kingdom that will last forever. So think about this. You get a new body in a new world that will last forever. And that would be enough. And God is there. But he says, not only do you get that, I'm going to give you wealth. I'm going to give you an inheritance. God's inheritance will be yours in his eternal kingdom. That's a promise for you. Think about that. And no matter who you are, these promises are not for Christians only. God has promised you all that and more in his word. 
You have incredible promises from God, just like Abram. How do you know that's true? There's two, two really important questions. One, how do you know that's true? Two, how do you receive those promises? Is it, does everybody just get in on this? No. First, how do you know it's true? Well, you know it's true because Jesus is alive. That's how you know. All of these promises, they, they, they sit, they rest on the same foundation as the promises to Abram. He says, I will bless you, and I will make you a blessing to all of the nations. This is a promise about sending Jesus. And all these promises in the New Testament they extend, they are, they are offered to the world through the Lord Jesus. So God, in the beginning, he created everything, and he created people. God exists outside of time, space, matter, energy. He called them into existence. He's given you life, and because of that, we are accountable to him. God is our authority. God is the standard for what is right and wrong and what is good and evil. And people, unfortunately, we fall short of that standard. You have broken God's laws. You've broken your own laws. <laughs> I mean, human beings, you can't even live according to your own standard of what is good. And so because of that, we are guilty before God. And God is holy, and he has to punish sin. And punishment for sin, the Bible tells us, because we are eternal beings, we're accountable to an eternal God, we have an eternal soul, punishment for sin is eternal. Punishment for sin will extend beyond this life in a place of separation from God called hell. This is the situation that human beings were in. And this is why God showed up to Abram in Genesis chapter 12 and promised to send Jesus through his lineage. Jesus came to solve the problem of sin, to save you from sin and death because he loves you, because he's good, because he's merciful. And he sent his son. Jesus became a human being. The eternal Son of God existing forever and ever into eternity past, equal with God, one with God, became a man. And he lived a sinless life, a righteous, holy life. And Jesus died on the cross to serve as the substitute for you. To take the penalty for sin that you deserve so that you could have his righteousness. He died so that you could have his life. And we know that's true because the grave was empty. This happened very publicly. I had another same conversation this week. I said to this man, I said, what do you think about Jesus? He said, well, I think he's a real person. I think he's a historical person. I said, what do you think about the the cross? He said, yeah, I think he died on the cross. I said, what do you think about the resurrection? He said, "Ah, I don't know about that. (laughs) I said, well, think about this for a minute. Jesus died on the cross, and this was witnessed by thousands of people. This happened in a major city in the ancient world with over a million people flooded there because of the Jewish Passover. Jesus was a superstar in his day. He was a famous rabbi. He died very publicly and then he was buried very publicly in a rich man's tomb. Joseph of Arimathea, who was one of the Sanhedrin, which means it's like he was a member of the U.S. Senate. He was a very famous, wealthy, well-known, influential person, and Jesus was buried there. Then the tomb was guarded by Roman guards. It was sealed with a Roman seal, and on the third day, guards are gone, tomb is empty, Jesus' body is gone. And then for 40 days, after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to people, and he spoke with them, and he ate with them, and he spoke to crowds. 
And if, if this was not true, it would have been instantly falsified. Because there was hundreds of people, thousands of people. Did you see him? Did you see him? Did you see him? And it was corroborated by everyone. Otherwise, Christianity never gets off the ground. In all of these promises, they are connected to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And if Jesus is alive, then these promises are for you. But you have to receive them. You don't just, you don't just default into receiving the promises. Just like Abram, you must believe God. You don't do anything to earn it. There's no steps. There's no hoops you have to jump through. You simply need to look at the promise and say, okay, God, I'm in. I believe that. I want that. But see, if you do that, it will change the way you live. If the gospel is true, that Jesus died and rose for you, and if you believe it, how might that shape your thinking and your living? How might that shape your decision-making? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though not seeing Him now, you believe in Him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Faith in the promises that come through Jesus sets you free. It sets you free to do what's right in this life even when it's costly. Because just like Abram, you know you can give your life away a thousand times. You can give your money away. You can give your time away. You can give your relationships away. You can give your hobbies away. You can give your hopes and dreams away. All of it. And you will never lose. You will never lose. Because look at what you have in Him. This life is just a blip on the radar. And then you're going to have an eternal inheritance in heaven. And even now, you can never lose being made righteous. You can never lose being given a new way of life. You can never lose your relationship with your heavenly Father. Those promises matter. And if you want to walk by faith, they need to shape your thinking. Step three, don't trust your eyes. Verse 10, Lot looked out and saw that the entire plain of the Jordan as far as Zor was well watered everywhere like the Lord's garden in the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself. Then Lot journeyed eastward and they separated from each other. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. Lot, he has an opportunity. Abram says, you pick. Where do you want to live? And he trusts his eyes. 
This is what happens. It's always a bad strategy, by the way. The other day, my son Jackson, he showed me a little card trick. And he's only 10 years old, and so he likes to try magic tricks on me every now and then. And usually, I can always spot exactly what he's doing. I try not to call him out, because I want him to feel you know, like, he, like he had a cool little trick. But he showed me this card trick the other day, kind of like a pick a card, any card. So you look at the card, you put it back in the deck, and then he shuffles the deck up. And I'm watching very closely for some sleight of hand or some mechanic for how he would identify and mark the card. But I never saw it. And then in the end, he says, is this your card? And I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> you know, That was a good card trick. I have no idea how you did that. And if I was only going based on my eyes, what I saw, I would have to conclude that my son has supernatural powers. <laughs> Like he's been taking classes at Hogwarts or something behind my back. I mean, we know our eyes are easily fooled, and yet people still trust them all the time. And this is exactly what Lot did. He evaluated the land purely based on external appearance and not based on God's word. So you have to remember, Lot almost certainly knew the promises from God made to Abram, and yet he picks a piece of the land. Eventually, he ends up outside of the border of the land of Canaan. That's where he ends up. And he chose very, very poorly. Step number four, how to walk by faith. Make decisions that make sense in light of God's promises. This is what biblical faith is. That's what it is. Faith is not mysterious. It's not magical. It is simply believing God's word and acting as if God's word is true. We, we live by faith in the natural world all the time. It's just, it's just believing the principles, the claims, the promises in God's word and living like they're true. Another way to think about this is it's making decisions that only make sense if our real joy and hope and lasting purpose comes from relationship with God in eternity. This is how Abram thought about his life. Hebrews 11 says this, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abram was ready to give the land away because he trusted God's promise. And then for years afterward, he lived as a nomad, nomad traveling around the land of Canaan, living out of tents for the rest of his life. Abram did not receive the land. He never fully received it. It wasn't until hundreds of years later, the Israelites actually took possession of the land. And Abram was fine with that. And Hebrew says he was fine with it because he trusted God's promise and he knew the promise was ultimately about eternity. This is what it goes on to say in Hebrews. Verse 14, now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return, but they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Throughout the Bible, the people of God, they didn't just hope in heaven as a way to comfort themselves at the thought of death. This is how many people think about heaven. They actually lived in ways that made no sense apart from the hope of heaven. This is true of Abram. It's true of many of the people of God in the Bible. They invested their lives in ways that made no sense apart from eternal rewards. And so 
One question you need to ask yourself is what are you investing your life in? What are you giving yourself to? What do you give your time to? What do you give your money to? What do you give the best of your relational capacity to? What do you give the best of your emotional and thought capital to? Because what God is calling us to in faith is to spend our lives to bring about His glory. To praise Him and worship Him publicly. And to to give our lives for the good of other people. To share the message of the gospel with the world. To make disciples who are making disciples. And that is hard. That is costly. That's going to require us to live in tents, figuratively. But if the Bible is true, it's an adventure, it's exciting, and it is the most rewarding life you could live. This is why Jesus says in Mark 8, 34, calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. Real life, real joy, real purpose, real fulfillment in this life is found as we give it away, as we give our lives away. That's only possible if you trust God's promises by faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, specifically just the just promise after promise after promise after promise. It's like you're, you're just daring us to trust you. Just, God, just, it's like you're saying, just trust me and just see what happens. I will bless you beyond your wildest dreams. I'll blow your mind. And God, I thank you, Lord, for me. That, that has been my experience. And I don't deserve it. And I know that that's been true of so many people here. And God, if, if there's someone here, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know the hope of those promises, I pray that they'd trust you. They'd believe you the way Abram did. God, if there's people here, Christians, who are not walking in faith, they're struggling with doubt, they're relying on their eyes, God, I pray that you'd help them to be renewed and strengthened, to learn like Abram. It's okay if you mess up. God's promises are still going to come true. Just believe Him. Walk in faith. Do what's right, even when it doesn't make sense. God, help us to be a church like that. Help us to be people like that, Lord. Help us to love You and worship You above all else. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to continue to worship the Lord. And uh, this part of the worship service, there's two additional ways that we're going to worship God. One is through communion. And communion is uh, something that the Lord Jesus commanded us to do. The, the cracker, the bread, represents His body that was broken on the cross. The juice represents His blood that was shed. And these serve as symbols of His atoning sacrifice. This is what, this is what cleanses us from sin. And you don't have to be a member of Walnut Creek to participate with us in communion, but we do ask that you are a Christian. You're someone who's placed your faith in the Lord Jesus and that you're walking in faith in Jesus. So even if you say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian and uh, you know, I grew up going to church and I believe the gospel, but if you have rejected God's commands and your heart is hard, 
then this part of the service is not for you. We'd ask you to repent. If you're someone who's not a Christian, or you're not sure if you're a Christian, then we would say this part of the service is not for you. What you need to do, instead of receiving the symbols, is you need to receive the substance, the actual body and blood of Jesus. You need to put your hope in him for salvation. If you want to do that, but maybe you haven't,